You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. Aaron Brockovich, which came out in 2000 and was directed by Steven Soderbergh. You're a lawyer? Hell no. I hate lawyers. I just work for them. She knew how to make a scene. What makes you think you can walk in there and find what we need? They're called boobs, Ed. Make a point. We can get them. They're a huge corporation. Kind of like David and what's his name? And make a difference. They're all signed. How did you do this? Seeing as how I have no brains or legal expertise, I just went up there and performed 634 sexual favors. I'm really quite tired. Julia Roberts is Aaron Brockovich. Rated R. It stars Julia Roberts, Albert Finney, Aaron Eckhart, Marg Helgenberger, Conchata Farrell, Cherry Jones, and Peter Coyote. The genre would be corporate legal slash family drama. Recently, I had the pleasure of watching this with my youngest daughter, who had not seen it before. She's become somewhat of an activist herself, and she dug it. And why wouldn't she? It's just one of those true underdog stories from the past 30 years which gives you hope that sometimes, sometimes, a corporation or any large entity which takes advantage of everyday people can be held accountable. As this is based on true events, the corporation in question is PG&E, which has a power plant right near the small town of Hinkley, California, where over the past several years leading up to this story, the water supply has apparently been contaminated with a questionable substance coming from the nearby plant. This contamination has resulted in various levels of nasty side effects for many local residents, including tumors. This has also led to several local residents eventually seeking litigation against the company through a small local law firm led by Albert Finney's Ed Masary. Now, not much has come of this litigation, as there was never any proof that PG&E's actions were contaminating Hinkley's water supply, nor that the company would have been aware of such a contamination. But look, what, what is all this, uh, this, uh, this story on this, this cancer stuff? You want to know? You have to hire me back. I got a ton of bills to pay. Fine. Fine. So Donna just put in these new cabinets. Real nice, stained the wooden off. When she gets a call from somebody at PG&E saying there's a freeway going to be built and they want to buy her house to put in an off-ramp to the plant. Meanwhile, the husband's sick with Hodgkin's. She's in and out of the hospital with tumors, believing one thing has nothing to do with the other. Because PG&E told her about the chromium. Well, get this, they had a seminar. They invited about 200 residents from the area, had it at the plant in this warehouse, telling them all about chromium-3 and how good it is for you, when all the time they're using chromium-6. And that's where our main protagonist, the titular Erin Brockovich, comes in. She's played by Julia Roberts as a beleaguered former beauty queen slash single mom of three children who has been struggling to find steady work. Through a series of unfortunate events, she ends up working at Masri's law firm mainly to do administrative support work. And she ends up having all of those Hinkley PG&E files left on her desk to sift through. Erin goes through these files and then not only takes it upon herself to start contacting these families from Hinkley, but she also begins to low-key investigate what's really happening. Erin becomes deeply involved with this investigation and eventually takes on the role of being an advocate for those families through her work with Masri's law firm. Everything the Jensen's have had, 
is proven reaction to exposure to hexavalent chromium. They have had breast cysts, uterine cancer, Hodgkin's disease, immune deficiencies, asthma, chronic nosebleeds. A million things could have caused those problems. Poor diet, bad genes, irresponsible lifestyle. Our offer is final, and it's more than fair. Wait a minute. I, I thought we were negotiating here. $250,000 is all I'm authorized to offer. I'll present your offer to my clients. I doubt that except. Mr. Masery, before you go off on some crusade, you might want to remember who it is you're dealing with here. PG&E is a $28 billion corporation. $28 billion? I didn't know it was that much. Wow! All of Aaron's tireless work helps lead to a massive lawsuit filed on behalf of the residents of Hinkley against PG&E. And along the way, Aaron also strikes up a romance with a local biker, George, who ends up being the nanny babysitter for her three children. George is played by Aaron Eckhart. And off the bat, who knew that he could be this charming just a couple of years after his breakout role as the corporate shit weasel to end all corporate shit weasels in In the Company of Men. Check out that movie, or maybe don't. Why don't I take you out to dinner to apologize for my rudeness? Huh? You give me your number. I mean, I already got your address, so you can't get away. Huh? And I'll call you up proper, and I'll ask you out and everything. You want my number? I do. I do want your number. Which number do you want, George? George. Now, I like the way you say that, George. Uh, Well, how many numbers you got? Oh, I got numbers coming out of my ears. For instance, 10. 10? Yeah. That's how many months old my baby girl is. You got a little girl? Yeah. Yeah, sexy, huh? How about this for number six? That's how old my other daughter is. Eight is the age of my son. Two is how many times I've been married and divorced. Sixteen is the number of dollars I have in my bank account. Eight five zero three nine four three. That's my phone number. And with all the numbers I gave you, I'm guessing zero is the number of times you're going to call. Hey, how the hell do you remember your bank balance right off the top of your head like that? See, that impresses me. Erin is presented to us as a spirited, yet often abrasive woman who cares deeply about not only taking care of her children, but also getting some restitution for the people of Hinkley, several of whom she's become very close with. On paper, a role such as this could have been pure cliché, but Julia Roberts really plays her as a flawed person who justifiably has a chip on her shoulder and means well though will often get in her own way by taking out her frustrations on those around her. Erin is a complicated character to root for at times, especially when we witness her display some unnecessary nastiness towards almost everyone, really, including George, Edward, who becomes her boss, and several of the other women working at the law firm. It's not always pretty, but it feels genuine thanks to career best work from Julia, who, in my opinion, was actually playing a full-on adult woman for the first time after spending much of the previous decade, the 90s, playing generally charming young girls, without much agency, mostly in rom-coms. Julia truly steps it up with this performance, and it's very clear that this was just an ideal match between director and actor. After this, Roberts and Soderbergh would also collaborate on three more films. And everyone involved is also just great. The film does not work nearly as well without Albert Finney's lived-in performance. The cinematography by Ed Lackman makes everything feel real yet cinematic. Susanna Grant's screenplay is beautifully structured, balancing Aaron's own personal drama with the overall case. And Mark Helgenberger, 
She almost steals the film with just a few key scenes that drive the stakes home for the story as she plays a local Hinkley woman who has suffered quite a bit as a result of the poisoned water. Then what's in our water? Because ours is okay. The guys from, from PG&E told me. They sat right in the kitchen and, and, and told me that it was, it was fine. I know, I know. But the toxicologist that I've been talking to... He gave me a list of problems that can come from hexavalent chromium exposure. Everything you all have is on that list. No, no, no. No, that's, that's, not, what, that's not what our doctor said. He said that, well, that one's got absolutely nothing to do with the other. Right. But PG&E paid for that, doctor. In front of and behind the camera, Aaron Brockovich is a genuine triumph. That brings us to the categories. And the first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. It was so tempting to choose the obvious choice, which is the ideal placement of a Sheryl Crow rocker kicking in at the end of this movie. The song is Every Day is a Winding Road, and admittedly, it is quite the catchy country rock song from the 90s. But one thing that really sneaks up on you throughout is a fantastic 80s throwback drama score from Thomas Newman. It's a throwback in that it's synth-based, as was common in the 80s, but doesn't try to call attention to itself with excess of electronic sounds. Newman is just one of those journeyman composers who has been putting out sneakily catchy music for movies since the mid-80s. And early on, he found his niche with genuinely breezy, piano-based scores, mainly for lighter comedies, and often very good ones like Real Genius, Gung Ho, and what I would consider one of the most underrated, hummable scores of the 80s, Desperately Seeking Susan, which is kind of funny in retrospect since it was most well-known at the time for being the film debut of mega pop star Madonna. And yet, she had literally nothing to do with that score. And then starting in the mid-90s with a very memorable score for The Shawshank Redemption, Thomas Newman's music just got bigger and more orchestral, But his score for Aaron Brockovich, however, it's quieter, less orchestral, and mainly piano-based. And it really works to help maintain the more laid-back tone which Soderbergh is going for. It gets emotional at points, but never bombastically so. And it mainly works as just a nice, jazzy accompaniment playing in the background as we watch Aaron's unique story unfold. We hear this off the bat with the track called Useless, as we watch Aaron struggling to find a new job and also pay her bills. We hear this theme repeated throughout the movie. It's very much an underdog theme, and it just kind of grows on you, like Aaron. And now the next category, which is Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. 
Of course, I'm going to take this category in a slightly different direction. Now, in case it was not already obvious by this point, I have always followed the Oscars. I watch them every year, and I always seem to get caught up in the race. Well, for the 2001 Oscars, I found myself more invested in the race than usual, as this was a true breakout year for Soderbergh. He had two films, both nominated for Best Picture and Best Director, This Movie and Traffic. I happen to love both films. I consider both of them probably among his best overall. And of course, they both lost to Gladiator that year for Best Picture. Oh, well. But Soderbergh actually won the Best Director Oscar for Traffic. And that being the more intricate movie with the grander scope, I've always been kind of cool with that. But it was actually the Best Actress race, which had me the most intrigued. Julia Roberts was the frontrunner that year. She did actually win Best Actress for a performance, which was great in a movie that I loved. And yet, I was annoyed at the time. And justifiably so, because she did not give the best performance that year, for the year 2000. Nope. Because as far as I'm concerned, the best performance from any actor or actress for that year was actually Ellen Burstyn, who just blew the doors off as a pill-addicted widower in the feel-good classic, Requiem for a Dream. I say feel-good, ironically, of course. Not to veer too far off from this movie, but man, Requiem for a Dream was just one of those in-theater experiences that I will never forget. Just an incredible movie, mainly focused on the downward spiral of drug addiction, with Bernstein's transcendent performance as Sarah Goldfarb at the center of it. And she goes to dark places with this role that are just seared into my brain more than 20 years later. And now, in most years, Bernstein would have likely won the Oscar for Best Actress, but Julia Roberts was just riding a juggernaut at the time. This was just her time, and admittedly for a great performance. But as far as I'm concerned, that Oscar should have gone to someone else. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Soderbergh just directs the hell out of this thing. And the way he brings out the best from Julia Roberts is essential to pulling off this story. I love the subtle way he handles this material, rarely going for cheap emotional beats, so when they come, they genuinely sneak up on you. And the best example would be that fantastic scene, this is probably the Oscar clip, if we're being honest, of Erin driving home late at night while George is describing to her over the phone how her baby just said her first word. In the hands of a lesser director and lesser actress, this scene could just be cloying or maudlin, but just seeing how the expressions on her face drift between joy and regret, it's a standout moment. Beth, I started talking. Beth? My Beth? We're all sitting around at lunch. And she pointed at a ball and said, Ball. Out of the blue like that. It was pretty intense. You know, seeing somebody's first word. You know, all the words are saying of their life. That's the first word she says. She says, Ball. She's pointing her little finger. Their beautiful, soft, chubby little arm. And their little cheeks. And she was looking at it like she had been looking at it for nine months, you know, and just couldn't get it out, but knowing what it was. She didn't look away or anything. She was just sitting there with their arm out. You should see Matthew and Katie and me. Our jaws just dropped. And we're like looking at her. I mean, we must have stood there for like three or four minutes and just looked at her. And she just had her arm out like that, you know, all. And, you know, little lips wrapped around her. It was great. It was intense. 
And that brings me to the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. As much as Soderbergh's direction is so key to this film's success, I have to give the MVP to Julia Roberts for delivering what really on paper is a genuinely tricky performance and what is also essentially a true movie star performance. She just eats up the camera with every moment. And no, this isn't just about several of the more revealing outfits that her character apparently wears for effect. But Roberts is still very impressive in this movie. When you can just tell by her facial expression, you can tell just how invested she has become in this crusade. Julia Roberts is the clear-cut MVP. The first time I heard that number, oof, I said, you've got to be kidding me. 40 goddamn percent? Aaron. I'm the one that's injured in this Joker sits at a desk all day, and he wants to walk away with almost half my reward. Aaron, can I... But then I asked him what he makes if I don't get anything. Then I don't get anything either. Plus, he's out all the costs. So I realized he's taking a chance, too. My rating for Aaron Brockovich would be five stars out of five. I love this movie and consider it to be one of the great underdog stories of the past several decades. It's peak Roberts and one of Soderbergh's best as well. And if you're looking to watch Aaron Brockovich, it is currently streaming on Peacock TV. And that ends another litigious review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.